Welcome to Too Much Scrolling for July 4th, 2023. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Chip Hasenflow, ready to sign my John Hancock, Steve. <laughs> Herbie Hancock. <laughs> We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. Happy anniversary, July the 4th, the celebration of the United States. USA, USA. <laughs> The signing of the Declaration of Independence, Steve. We hold these truths to be self-evident that the people like adventure movies. <laughs> That's your history it's, lesson for the day, kids. It's an important day in the history of the world. Yes. Very, very big deal. Yes. Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Hey, Chip. Hey, yeah. Hey. I, went, I went to a movie theater, Chip. I saw Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, a movie that I've been waiting for for a long time, my friend. Well, and, you know, there was a little dread on this film coming. Mm-hmm. because, And then we had Teddy kind of uh, come on, Teddy Durgan, um, basically a, a person who's reviewed movies for many, many years. And uh, he was like, yes, you're going to enjoy this film. And uh, yes, I sat there with the opening audience who was packed in there, and they all enjoyed this film too. And I went on Friday night, so not opening day like Thursday like you went, Friday night in Indiana. By the way, I traveled to Indiana to watch Indiana Jones. I ate Indian food before we went to the movie. Uh, Executive producer Ron and I had a, had a, a... 24-hour trip that we went over to Indiana just for fun and saw this movie. We were excited to see this, and Teddy's review certainly helped my excitement. I walked into this wanting to see an Indiana Jones movie, and this is an Indiana Jones movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he's a little older now, Steve. We all are, Chip. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, the last 30 years have aged me. So we do get a lot of CGI in this film, Mm -hmm. um, which basically means that the first sequence is ultimately Indiana Jones as a cartoon, but it's certainly much better. I was was able to suspend my disbelief. I I walked into this knowing I was going to see the de-aged Harrison Ford. I knew what I was walking into, and I was okay with it. This technology has gotten really great. Well, it's certainly come a long way from the Robert Zemeckis films, like the uh, Polar Express and things of that nature. Oh, yeah, for sure. So we uh, last left uh, Indiana and in his previous, when he was Marion Marion. <laughs> <laughs> and things didn't work out so well. It looks like that um, uh, Shia LaBeouf, um, the Adam Driver of this film franchise, has uh, has passed away. Just off, off screen. screen. Off, just off screen. Apparently, Shia LaBeouf was not interested in being a part of this, so they totally wrote that character out. Like, oh, he passed away. We're very sad. And they're very sad. They are very heartbroken over the, the passing of their son, but uh, not much mention is made of it. So we have all the tropes that you want. We have when they travel, there's maps. Traveling you, by you, map. Okay, we have uh, stunts that are crazy. Uh, very, very good. 
the action sequences in this certainly are the shining star of this. This is an action adventure movie, just like all of the other Indiana Jones movies. The CGI, it, it's got that that little twinge of uh, uncanny valley where you're look, you're looking at these pictures, going, they can't do that. Human bodies can't go that way. This is miraculous. This is some sort of religion where this character survives this. Well, you know, you have you have an eighty year old there doing those stunts too, so that's another part of it. That is part of it. So we have a uh, pseudoscience because there's always some kind of crazy thing going on that indiana jones is going to do and the nazis are there to take advantage of it steve it's got all of those tropes every single one of those tropes of indiana jones the nazis are looking for this miracle of a tool to solve their war problem and indiana jones discovers it and and find and is smarter than everybody else everybody else he outsmarts everybody and figures it out and he's a history professor so and so history is a he's an archaeologist but yeah he also teaches he there's a there's a great scene of him teaching remember in the raiders lost ark where everyone was enthralled by indiana jones oh i love you professor jones and now we fast forward to he's an 80 year old not quite the same teacher as he used to be and what is so fascinating the day that he's teaching is the day the united states lands on the moon yeah. And so he is not interested in current history, altering history, history that is history. Mm-hmm. Um, he is still in, sort of stuck in the past. He The past is important to him. Today is not, even though it is historical day. That's great storytelling. That is great storytelling that that he is this archaeologist who is so enthralled by history and doesn't notice the current activity, doesn't even care, looks at the kid in the space helmet on the train and goes, okay, that's weird. But it's not just any other day. I mean, it truly is an historic day. Mm-hmm. You know, if he was 100 years um, I'm sorry, if you were writing an Indiana Jones film from today, assuming, you know, he's like 150 years, he's like, we're going to get back in history to the day the U.S. landed on the moon. That's a historic day. To have that written into the script, to have him just so, you know, not, for him, it's not momentous. In fact, it comes up later on in the film as a um, at the end where he's like, he wants to stay in history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course he gets knocked out and that's not going to happen. Isn't that the way of historians sometimes though, that they want so badly to be a part of that history. They are blind to the history that's being built in front of them. Groups of adult men show up at battlefields all over the South to recreate certain battles, Steve. Yeah. I really enjoyed the characters in this movie. I really enjoyed the acting in this movie. Toby Jones, who is uh, one of the 18 British actors, uh, did a great job being that bumbling guy that Indiana Jones has to save. Uh, John Reese davies walking in as Sala was so joyous. He just lit up the screen and, and commanded your attention. Harrison Ford really is indiana jones in this he is and here's the other part is we get the youth side sidekick and we get the person that he is being paired with so this is his goddaughter to go on this adventure 
And so that, once again, these are all tropes. Every beat is there for this, this film. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what can you say? And if you don't know this, when you heard everywhere, kiss an elbow. That that callback is phenomenal. I, I loved that moment in the movie. Phoebe Waller-Bridge is one of the, the best actors working right now. She does such a great job filling in as the adventurer and never ever being sure of whether she's a good guy or a bad guy. I love that storytelling in this. Yeah, this is certainly meant for the general audience. I mean, who's who's a person who is aware of Indiana Jones. I don't know how well it tracks with young people, but you know, for those boomers and for Gen X, this is real important. Very nice to go on this uh, this adventure with them. The only thing I would have changed is I would have cut out 15 minutes of each of the big action sequences. The big action sequences were too long. I was like, I get it. They're driving through the streets and, and I get it. They're the underwater scene. Underwater scenes are always awful in movies. This was, it could have been 15 minutes shorter. Easy. What's your score out of a hundred on your chip scale? I'm so sorry. 55 out of a hundred. And just, it's a fun movie. Book it, book it, book it, book it, book it, book it, book it. Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. Uh, I I am doing a lot of work in my uh, semi-retirement of the summer, Chip. Steve, you know what's really important to do? It's improv. You know, it's really important getting a, a big giant tome of a manual of how to do improv. I've been reading the Upright Citizens Brigade Comedy Improv Handbook. This was published in 2020, and it is a giant workbook of the, the things that you need to think about in order to be a successful improv actor. Here in Chicago, improv is king. The people who are on stage at the improv clubs here in Chicago are are potentially the next stars of shows like Saturday Night Live. Well, in fact, there's the the if you're not familiar what improv is, think Saturday Night Live. Think think skits, and eventually it moves into movies because movies. A lot of the comedy movies we watch are a lot of improv too, where they'll have I don't know they'll shoot something fifty or sixty times to find the one one the one team. moment. The game in the words. That's what this book is all about, is finding the game. The idea of improv is you, as a professional, thinking on your toes, listening carefully to what all of the other people on stage are saying, and reacting to what they say. Yes, and is the king of improv. You, as an actor, don't have a script. You are just working together as a community to put together something funny. And you, one of the rules, the first rule of improv, is to agree with everything that everybody has to say, right? Is that what it is? Yes. I, I don't know. It is. It's to agree. Ah. <laughs> thanks for thanks for catching my subtle hint that you should have agreed with what I said, Chip. Well, there we go. I'm learning improv all of a sudden, Steve. Yes, and you can learn improv by reading this book. This is a very, very thick handbook of the rules of the game. And I keep saying the game. The, the idea of the game is finding the funny in the normal. Start 
starting with a normal story, what would, you know, give me a situation. I'm going to be a baker who's baking a cake. That's normal. Then the game is finding the abnormal, the weird in that story and having fun. So after, as you're reading this, do you find that this style of comedy will eventually, you know, is it different from previous generations of comedy? Vaudeville, maybe stuff like that. Um, and will it be timeless? As in, will we run through a time where this type of comedy is not enjoyable? That's a very interesting question. I think that certainly this brand of comedy comes from that vaudeville ideal of sketch comedy sketch comedy very short storytelling not long form very short ideas that have a beginning middle and end and make you think about the current situation what's Uh happening in the real world and turning that sideways to look at it from a different perspective i think vaudeville did that a lot and i think that that is a very strong way to write just about any story it doesn't have to be comedic at that point it can be very serious just taking truth and turning it 90 degrees or 180 degrees and looking at it from a different perspective trey parker and matt stone and south park I remember watching something, I don't know, many, many years ago where they talked about how to write a South Park script. And it was always and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and. And basically that's where the absurdity comes in because the, the characters build upon each other and one absurdity leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And all of a sudden, you know, their point is being made without beating you over the head with it. The critical piece of that is yes, and instead of yes, but you can't derail the thought of somebody else on stage. The critical listening skills is the biggest part of improv. I I try to teach my students when we're doing a scripted play on stage that acting is mostly reacting, listening carefully, and then playing with what that person said if they said it wrong you have to go with it you have to go with what they said otherwise you make them look foolish is that how one becomes a thespian steve there's a lot there's a lot to it but yes as a person who has studied improv my whole life a person who you know growing up in chicago saw these people i have a current student who is on stage at second city right now who is like really she yes she's amazing and she is one step away from that fame because she's so good at listening and caring about others and showing that care on stage Yes, she's funny. Yes, she's silly, but she's listening carefully. That's the big thing that I got from reading through this particular handbook. The Upright Citizens Brigade is different from Second City, but they have their basis in the same troop. They're they're from Chicago, and the idea of very complex, long-form improv is what the Upright Citizens Brigade does. So tell me more about this book. What else are we learning? The the keys to good improv are fast thinking and being able to share thoughts about the perspective of people in the seats. 
what is going on in the world today, taking what is current events and analyzing them in a comedic way. There's a lot of work in this book thinking about how do you change your thinking to change the thinking of the audience here. It's it's complex. It's difficult. And sometimes you're going to fail at that. You're not always going to find the right key to that audience. And, and that's an important thing to learn as a performer. How do you reach this audience today? This is so much what I think about when I'm teaching the audience of my students, how am I going to reach them today? Is being silly going to reach them? Some days, sometimes being silly is the right choice. Improv is not always silly. It's not always ridiculous, but sometimes it is. You need to find the key to that audience. Well, here's an interesting, I'm sorry, I'll say it's an interesting question. If you are, is it the person that makes the character funny or is it the writer that makes the character funny? Well, in improv, there is no writer. There is this is all off the cuff, live on on stage at reaction. Then, if it works, then write it down, make a script, and do it again. That's how you know TV shows like The Upright Citizens Brigade and Saturday Night Live and all of the improv based shows work. If it was funny once can it be funny again? And the answer is not always. It's not always funny a second time. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm thinking if you watch the clips from like uh, Talladega Nights, Eastbound and Down, these are the, the cut clips. You can see the actors basically working off of each other. Mm-hmm. They're recording the same scene multiple times. They're trying to find the one that zips. I'm immediately thinking of Anchorman when you have this ensemble Mm -hmm. and what they're doing is many of their scenes. In fact, I would be very surprised if many of those scenes were even written at the time. Mm -hmm. They had a concept like we're all going to be meeting in this room and we're all going to be having a beer and kind of, um, I don't know, powering down and we're just going to interact with each other. Let's see what happens. A general concept of what the scene needs to express to get to the next scene. And that's about it. Give these geniuses of comedy time to play on screen and to show each other, maybe try to show each other up. Sometimes those scenes, they're they're cracking each other up. And that's a, a golden ticket to comedy. The, the uh, 40-year-old version. Um, and we have our... our, our main character having his Steve Carell is having his chest waxed that this, this, um, this moment where it's being ripped off, they cannot retake those. Right. Uh, And so there's the tension when you rewatch that, remember it's all improv Mm -hmm. with something that cannot be taken back. I think of Robin Williams in front of a microphone doing voiceover for Disney. All of that work that he did for the voice of the genie in Aladdin. And he did hours of work where he was just making stuff up out of his head. His head was a, a little different from other people's heads, but he had such enthusiasm. And then it's the editing process that takes that and makes it into a story. So this sounds very interesting. Do you have one more thing you want to leave us with? 
I, I just think while I'm reading a book about improv, about how I interact with people all day long, not just in my classroom where I'm trying to command attention of my audience, not just on this podcast where I'm trying to command attention of my audience, but how I interact with people at a grocery store, that idea of listening carefully, thinking through what does this person in front of me need right now? How can I help them? I know that I, I, I think about being a helper often, but improv gives me the vocabulary to think through how can I make this person's day better or this minute, this moment that I'm standing with this person. And, and that's what I think of when I think of improv. Steve, as middle-aged men, one of the real joys is to go in and talk to young people using their language and having them just look at you and just cringe, just like, Oh my goodness. Some of it is cringe. Some of it is for sure cringe. There are certainly moments I have in the grocery store where people are like, what is this guy talking about? Why is this guy talking to me? This is not what I need right now. There are those moments for sure. But the beauty is, is their reaction. And you're having a little, you're having a little play interaction right there with them. And being playful is very dad-like and very old man-like. So it's it's a lot of fun to enjoy each other. Get off my plane. <laughs> That's the Upright Citizen Brigade Comedy Improv Handbook published in 2020. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. Oh boy, Chip, let me explain. I watch a lot of television and you have heard of television. But you know what's really exciting about it? There's movies about television and television networks. Come to the library, read books about TV. Yes, that's what we're here to discuss today. We, we saw a movie called Attack of the Dock, and writer, director, and producer Chris Gore is joining us today. Good morning, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, excited to talk to you guys. It's so exciting to to hear from you. It's been a long time since the attack of the show was on G4, that cable network that no longer exists. Exactly. Well, there was a recent uh, attempt to relaunch the show on YouTube, uh, the, the whole network. Um, it didn't go as planned, but um, I, 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 think, I think that maybe what the people involved in the new G4 TV network didn't recognize is how much the landscape has changed in a very short period of time. Uh, yeah. Really short. It was 10 years after G4 ended that suddenly, you know, they're going to relaunch it, but the landscape changed. I really think that ultimately YouTube kind of took over is, is what happened. And, and um, you've got more independent voices talking about comic books, movies, video games, technology, and um, you could find your favorite type of person to talk about that stuff. There are many different voices. And and that may have been some of the reasons for the sort of failure to launch of the new, new network. Yeah, G4 was one of the last linear cable channels created before all that streaming. I've, I've been thinking lately about the word channel and the word stream and how different our ability to find information that we love 
how different that is in the last decade. Tech TV was the predecessor. I love tech TV. I love thinking about all that technology. That's what I do for a living is talk about technology. And uh, G4 focused more on the video game aspects of those things. Yeah, G4 was launched in on April 24, 2002. And it the idea was to be a video game channel that would cover video games and tech. And it launched with a whole bunch of shows. They were they were throwing stuff at the wall. They didn't know what would have landed or been successful. They just, it was unclear. And they tried out a whole bunch of different shows that, you know, didn't really gain any traction. And it was, uh, they ended up merging with a network called Tech TV, which was doing a very successful show, very popular show called The Screensavers. And they also had another show called X-Play. X-Play was specifically about video games, which had Adam Sessler and Morgan Webb as their hosts. And then the screensavers had Leo Laporte, Sarah Lane, among others. And it was a popular show about tech and computers and uh, software, whatnot. And when G4 took over and merged with tech TV, they ended up, you know, continuing to do the screensavers and then changed the name of the show to attack of the show in March, 2005, merging some of the G4 hosts and the tech TV hosts. Yeah, Sarah Lane and Kevin Rose stuck around for a little while from the screensavers. Exactly, but then they both left of their own accord. It, um, you know, it was an experiment. It was a time when, and it, it's impossible maybe for younger listeners to even comprehend this. There were a time when nerds were not cool. When <laughs> reading a superhero comic or speaking about your love of a particular superhero movie was not considered cool. You were having spreadsheets for all of it is probably uh, not on the list of things that certain people were doing during the early 2000s, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was so this was this was not considered it wasn't a mainstream thing. And I really believe that, you know, things such as, you know, tech, which is now pervasive in our lives, you know, we all have smartphones of some type. Also, superhero movies are the biggest movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's bombs here and there, but, you know, Marvel movies popularized. Look, you go to Target, they have Star Wars and Marvel t-shirts, right? That wasn't the case back in the day. So being a nerd is mainstream. It's cool, you know, and and that wasn't the case when, when Attack of the Show launched in March of 2005. It was during the course of the show that suddenly nerd culture became uh mainstreamed and and widely known and and popular among the masses which it wasn't before it was kind of a a fringe thing which brings us to this movie that you've created called attack of the dock which is an exploration of the g4 television network and also attack of the show in particular yeah i mean I, i wanted to take people back very specifically in the opening scene of the movie i'm trying to bring people back to that era through a lot of like 480, you know, three, four old school television, because it wasn't until 2005 that things started to go HD. We take it for granted now. Now we have 4K, but back then it was not great resolution. But I, but I, I want to bring people back to that era, kind of show them what it was like. And also in a, in a small way, you know, we become, I mean, I always expect politics to be divisive. It's just, always been that way but i never thought i would see the nerd space become divided i mean i don't care what star wars movie you despise 
or love. We all have different opinions about things. And and I'm talking about Chris. There are three Star Wars movies. Exactly. But I mean, look, I, I look, I, I, I respect other people's opinions. I think the nerd debate is always fun, but I don't take it personal. And what I've begun to see is sort of this creep of um, people getting in nerd debates where they're not going to be friends with people. Or they dislike someone or they assume certain views because you don't like a certain thing in a movie. And I've never seen that. I've never seen the nerd world. In my opinion, the, the nerd space, because I've been going to nerd stuff since I was a kid. You know, when there weren't really big Comic Cons. I mean, I've been going to San Diego Comic Con since the early 90s. But like when I was going to comic shows, it was like a little adjunct to the Detroit Auto Show. They'd have a room showing 16 millimeter prints of Star Trek episodes and Doctor Who episodes. And then there'd be a room of people selling comics and Adam West and William Shatner would be signing autographs. That's real. That's okay. awesome. Now it's a big business. It's a big business. It's legit families go it's um very very popular but it is the nerd space is the most welcoming space if you you like the same thing i like we're going to be friends you like x-men cool and the thing is what's great about the nerd space not one person can know everything so you get a lot of nerds that know a lot about a lot of other you know a lot about other areas of nerddom i love that i love it it's my the nerds nerds are my people Watching the film, I got the I got a feeling of the beginning of MTV with their VJs, and I mean it was it was like the right type of budget, not too big, not too small. You guys had that sort sort of same feeling with your host. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, in the early days of you know, I started there. I, I did a segment called DV Tuesday. I was on three episodes of The Screensavers, which then turned into Attack of the Show. I was told to keep that very secret which I thought it was the dumbest name I'd ever heard for a show. I mean, it grew on everybody, but when I first heard it, I thought it was terrible. But I did a weekly movie segment, so I was on the show, but I was also a fan of the show. And this weekly segment was called DV Tuesday, and I would just cover the latest movies that came out on DVD. Eventually, I became like a sort of standby uh, co-host, and then I did other movie segments and junkets, and whenever it was all hands on deck covering like a a Comic-Con or something like CES in Vegas, I was part of the group that covered it, but it was, it was, you know, first it was the least money I made in television, but the most fun I ever had. And in those early days, it was low budget. It was, you know, what can we think of that'll be funny? And when Olivia Munn joined the show, she was cast to be the co-host with Kevin Pereira after Sarah Lane left. The chemistry they had was palpable. The two of them had a wit. They were constantly trying to one-up each other. It was like the greatest improv live you ever saw. And if things went well, it was fun. And if things went bad, it was also fun. Because both Kevin and Olivia had such a great sense of humor about themselves that when they made made mistakes, they just made it part of the show. It was part of the fun of the show is they were all in on the joke. And it was one of the first shows that I remember that had direct connection with the audience. They launched this Twitter wall where people from the show could tweet live and comment and be a part of the show. They had vetted, you know, they vetted some tweets, make sure there's no language or whatnot. And um, this was... Attack of the Show was one of the first shows to do that. Now that's, you know, Twitter is, you know, news stories. 
because journalists these days are lazy. But that was that was a big deal back then. You know, the the direct engagement. They even had a thing called Viewer Army, which was when people who watched the show actually did segments for the show. So it was really innovative. It was very much ahead of its time. And Attack of the Show, I would argue, was YouTube before YouTube. Because the thing, the secret sauce of YouTube for me is authenticity. That mm -hmm. is why YouTube is popular. Because you find someone, and there's so many, look, if you want to look up comics, there are thousands of people talking about comics. And that goes for every category. But the thing that it connects all the most successful YouTubers are they are very authentic with their audience. And when you look at the mainstream media today, there's a reason mainstream media is plummeting in popularity. And it's because we have the, we've seen behind the curtain. We've seen that like maybe the mainstream media is something that we can't always trust hundred percent of the time. I don't know that I would trust a corporation, but I trust a person hmm. and, and you know, G4 and attack of the show had that way early. Because YouTube launched in 2005, and even then it was limited. You know, you could only upload videos that were a maximum of 10 minutes. YouTube has really evolved in terms of its technology and, and whatnot. And so I see why, I mean, I, I watch a lot of YouTube. I see why it's popular. I can actually- I, I do too. YouTube is great. It's I love it. But I, I would argue Attack of the Show was YouTube before YouTube. And I see why it was so popular. And that is um, due in no small part to the chemistry with Kevin Pereira and Olivia Munn. They were just, they had amazing chemistry and it's really incredibly difficult to, uh, to replicate that. So let me add to this discussion sure. uh, on YouTube. Currently, if you were uh, wanting to watch a interview show eating spicy hot wings, you could do it right but on G4. They were taking shots of Cholula <laughs> back to <laughs> They were. I mean, it was just, they were doing stuff like that. I mean, I look at like the bits that were done on the show because we had like thousands of hours. We called that down to about 300 hours. And then from that, of course, you know, then I did interviews um, with like, about over 20 people that were involved in the behind the scenes of the show because I kind of knew like the hosts had done podcasts after the network ended. They kind of had their say. And a lot of it was very glad handing. Like it was great to work with so-and-so. It was not any real, I was looking for real insights, some sort of deeper knowledge of the show. And so I interviewed the two directors that collectively um, did over a thousand episodes of Attack of the Show. I interviewed uh, the development executives that was the, the John Ryber, who was integral, the head writer, Casey Schreiner, even cameramen who were on the show and uh, the sound guys. Like I wanted to get like the people behind the scenes that have stories that have never been documented. And I wanted them to tell their stories. What was it like? What was it really like behind the scenes? Because I don't know that you would get, for the people on camera, I don't know that you would 100% get an honest answer. I'm not mm. saying that they're being de deceptive or dishonest, just that, you know, they would, for the most part, more than likely be diplomatic. And I was looking for, sure. I wanted to get like deeper responses, which is why I interviewed crew members, which I think turned out well, because there's stuff, there's so many things I didn't know, which is why I've actually on uh we have a film threat interviews channel we recently released extended interviews with everyone who was included in the documentary we just dropped them. wow and, and also they'll be on the upcoming blu-ray if you go to attack of the doc.com that's attack of the doc doc.com you can pre-order the blu-ray 
which will be released in August. There's tw- more than 28 hours of content on the Blu-ray. That's I, I, my, I spent a year working on this Blu-ray. It's the ultimate mic drop collectible for this film. Um, and a lot of Easter eggs that I defy you. You're going to find them. I made them easy to find, but the Easter eggs are a lot of fun. It's it's great to talk to the primary stars of a show, but those production people, those are the heart and soul of any production. I put on musicals and I have, there's, there's a cast and then there's a crew and those people that know how this is put together, the cast might not. Finding those people to interview is a phenomenal way to do this documentary, sir. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for saying so. Yeah, it's it. I just got stories I didn't think I would hear, like what happened in Japan when Kevin and Olivia would go there to do segments, like crazy stories. Like it's just, I couldn't include them all. I had to be very selective. And I was literally trying to distill 20 years from 2002 to the present, 20 years of G4 TV and and attack of the show history into one movie because, you know, it recently relaunched. So I had to be really selective about what was in the film and also wanted to, by contrast, show how much the world has changed. Mm -hmm. You know, we live in, we live in a world of, you know, people will get canceled for saying, thinking or doing the wrong thing. And nobody cared back then. And I've got this sort of Greek chorus with Zach Selwyn, who was one of the hosts on the show This guy can write a song at the drop of a hat. You give him five keywords, he'll write a song about it. He did a song in the documentary called You Can't Do That No More. And it's a list of all the things you cannot do anymore on TV or in movies. And it's, it's bizarre to me how much in a decade things have dramatically shifted where somehow we've lost our sense of humor. And I think it's unfortunate. I think we need to... I would say this to all Americans on all sides, wherever you stand politically, lighten up. We're all Americans. (laughs) We have differences. That's okay. Some of us love The Last Jedi and some people hate The Last Jedi. And I don't care. We're fans. We can find one, at least one Star Wars movie we all love. We have, I look for areas of connection, not areas of division. I believe that, I really do believe there's, um, you know, there are people trying to divide this country in a way that's very unhealthy. And I wanted to remind people of what it was like very recent history when we were just all united by the things we loved and we would, we would still debate and argue, but we weren't ending friendships or relationships over differing opinions on a movie. I, you know, that's new to me. I've never seen it. And I hope that ends forever. There's a difference between debate and argument potentially the algorithm that brought you to that community where you can find that thing you love Mm -hmm. is the same algorithm that's dividing you up and creating this, um, uh, I don't know, toxic not the proper word, but certainly divisive way that many people are looking at the world. Mm -hmm. Um, Boy, you you said it very eloquently um, that we need to rediscover that we're all on the same team, even though you may have differences than another person. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I always look for, mainly because I'm just an overly positive person. I mean, my second favorite character in the Star Wars universe, my first favorite is Yoda. 
My second favorite is just because of the philosophy of Yoda, him being underestimated as being tiny and small, but he's very powerful. He's filled with wisdom. Love Yoda. <laughs> My second favorite is Luke Skywalker. Luke Skywalker is filled with optimism. He's loyal to his friends. And I am that. I am an optimistic person. I always try to see the positive side of things. We've somehow lost that, unfortunately. Particularly for a time that is, re- I mean, think about it. We, there could be a war in Ukraine and Russia. I got that. But for the most part, most of us are leaving, living peaceful lives with toilets yeah. and refrigerators and all sorts of wonderful things available to us and entertainment on demand. <laughs> right. Right. And so when I see people argue online, it really is, I almost think there is an addiction to rage. There's an addiction yeah. to being angry. So people look on social media to find something to be upset about because there may be a dopamine rush from that. And I and I fear for our kids. I mean, fortunately, I have kids. They're both grown adults now. But my kids um, just missed social media. They were just old enough to like um, just get on Facebook, but smartphones were not a thing yet. And I'm grateful. I really believe that for the mental health of young people, Stay off social media. Don't sit there and compare yourself to someone. Don't get involved in bullying and fights and all this. Like I, I think it's it's unfortunate to me to see what social media has done to kids. I mean, so I was, I mean, look, the movie doesn't see I, I touch on things like that, but it's not very luxury, but it's but it's in there, yeah. right? And I really don't think like if if my kids were younger now, they wouldn't have access to social media. I think you've got to be over 18 to be maybe even over 21 to just be in a mentally well space to be able to have conversations on social media in a respectful way. And I believe that if we can solve the problem of learning to debate respectfully on the internet, we can accomplish anything as a people. Any we can solve any problem if we can just solve that one. So maybe I'm maybe I'm being too much of an optimist, but I really believe that. So in many ways, your movie was um, a celebration of a time that was able to bring that group together. And, you know, 20 years later, we, we've got our new challenges um, yeah, I mean, it's, that it's we're dealing group, with. Yeah, it's a group that was ostracized. And look, I grew up a nerd. I was teased. You know, I was teased for, you know, I was an indoor kid. I read comic books. I played video games. I read science fiction novels like dune i i put together model kits i was just i was an indoor kid wasn't particularly into sports i was a nerd i like nerd stuff okay sounds familiar chris that that you've just you've just given my autobiography yes that yeah. i was that kid as well and now i'm a podcaster right exactly so it's not an uncommon thing but i grew up when that was like a source of shame mm-hmm. you know and even as an adult like okay i had long boxes of comics i'm an adult why do i still have them like you know, I would now it's not a, a source of shame. It's it's uh, like I say, they sell Marvel and Star Wars T-shirts at Target. Right. Like nerd stuff is mainstream now. It is popular. So I wanted to make that point And I wanted to uh, I wanted to kind of just just by showing how it used to be stands in contrast to the way things are now, which might make you sure. think about, well, why are things the way they are now? Like, and why does it have to be that way? Does it have to be that way? It actually doesn't have to be that way. You can find points of connection with people that you know. And I, I see I see it so obvious. The people that push division, I believe that is 
uh, an agenda that will not serve this country in a positive way. And I have seen better times just because I've lived on a longer timeline. So I notice things and, and um, I see it very clearly what's being done and it's, we're going to a bad place. And look, my documentary is also, it's for people who've never heard of attack of the show. My documentary is for people who loved attack of the show. Both audiences can enjoy it. It's also meant to be entertaining. I mean, there's a little bit of a history lesson at the beginning. It takes a little while to get going, but once it gets going, I would say that Attack of the Dock is a lot of fun to watch. Um, I hope it, you know, maybe it leans, maybe it's a little too, you know, uh, going for the feels, but that that was by design. I really wanted to tap into something. And there is a post-credit scene, just like a Marvel movie. So I nice. hope you stay the credits <laughs> of the film. Um and I just, I I really wanted to entertain, but then also make some serious points, but not in a way that felt like you were being, you know, lectured or talked down to the messages for everybody. I mean, and it's, it's in there, but not in a, in a, in a way that you would, you would feel annoyed by it. I, I think you really captured a, a time period uh, and sort of what was going on, the zeitgeist of uh, technology and uh, I don't know, science fiction, comics, movies, game culture, any type of, of, of thing that was out there. And I think your point was, I mean, I, I, I am a person, once again, who, who watched it, who had not been familiar other than the name, um, and was very uh, engaged in this movie. So I think you, you grabbed that very, very well. And through our interview, you certainly have um, showing some of the challenges we're dealing with today. Uh, yeah. let, let's go real quick. And, and what is your hope, say, 10 years from now, where do you hope we're going to be? Well, I, I hope that we are less divided as a country. I hope that um, there are people in leadership that recognize that uh, we need we need to be united, that we can solve any problem. There's a lot of gloom and doom. This is why I really feel this is important to me because I have, you know, I have nieces and nephews that are young, uh, that are in, in, in high school and going to college. You know, I have uh, grown adult children and what is being fed to them is gloom and doom. It doesn't surprise me that rates of depression are so high among young people. This is of concern to me. And it's high because of what is being fed by the mainstream media. Don't go down that dark path. There's positivity and there's ways to solve every single problem. You know, I have, I have an issue of Newsweek magazine from 1969 uh, on the cover about man landing on the moon. I grew up in a time of great optimism in face of some really dark times, which was the Vietnam in the, in the shadow of the Vietnam War and, and um, Nixon administration. And in this issue of Newsweek that talks about man landing on the moon, there's an article talking about climate change and how it's going to destroy the world. This is in 1969. Okay. Mm -hmm. They have been ringing this bell for a long time. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't recycle and move towards clean energy. We should do all of those things. We should be smarter about that. What's wrong with that? Let's do that. But the gloom and doom, I don't believe. I believe we can solve any problem. I believe that humans are resilient, that there are inventors and people who will create new technologies that are going to 
fix problems that that are, that are that are on the horizon and there needs to be a return to optimism and positivity and we're i'm not seeing it from any of our people in leadership and i'm even not seeing it in our media a lot of movies are this movie is dark we've done dark the original star wars movie which came out in 1977 may 25th i was there as a kid you know i had newspaper outs a kid i don't know what this movie is the trailers for it were terrible I didn't know. I just like monster movies and science fiction. That movie was created by George Lucas as a modern fairy tale, a fable, a fantasy, a space opera, as George Lucas called it. Not science fiction. He didn't call it science fiction, space opera. Mm -hmm. It's filled with positivity. Luke Skywalker's this living in kind of a dark time and, and, and he's still positive in spite of all of those things. And we need that. That movie, when it came out, stood in contrast to everything that was dark. I mean, movies, I think the 1970s was the last great era of American filmmaking, where movies were about and for Americans. You saw a little bit more of that in the 80s, and it's kind of faded away. Now movies are made for a global market. May or may not be a good thing. Star Wars, when it originally came out, came out, it was in contrast to everything else was dark and you know, movies ended, all the movies at the time ended with a horrible ending for the lead character died at the end. It was something terrible happened. But Star Wars was this beacon, this light of optimism. We need a return to that. And anyone that would make a film that espouses those values, I believe will be, when it comes to the zeitgeist, will be hugely popular, especially among kids, because kids are not getting positive messages these days. They're being lectured to about things that I don't think are even really a problem. They're being maybe told they're bad if they don't think a certain way. They're being told, you know, in the media that the world's going to end over like none of it, everything. I would just say this. There's a thing when I was a kid, because I'm Gen X, question authority. You should be doing the same. Question authority. And you come to your own mind about how you think about a thing. And that is your superpower. Your superpower is really learning how to think for yourself. You learn how to think for yourself, you're going to be really good. If you learn how to think for yourself and make good decisions, you're going to be in a good place. Consider different sides of an argument. So um, in a small way, my documentary about a TV show that some people were a fan of uh, years ago, um, I touch on those things. Mm -hmm. But it's really important to me. It's really important to me because I think it's it's a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge that we're all facing. Which brings us to your current project on Film Threat, where you are doing the Critics Court Star Wars on trial. Oh, yes, that is a real thing that exists. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm doing a show called Critics Court. It's Star Wars on trial. We're putting Lucasfilm and Disney on trial for the murder of the Star Wars franchise. Part of my uh, not-so-secret agenda with that show is to bring people who disagree with each other together to talk. Mm -hmm. That is why I'm doing the show. There you go. Literally, the reason is there are people who love Disney Star Wars. There are people that dislike it. I want to get them together in a room to talk to each other respectfully. So go. this ties into something that I feel very 
strongly about. And that's why part of the reason I created the show and also it's entertaining. It's done in like a courtroom style. It's, it is ridiculous. It's a fake courtroom show. I mean, a, a kangaroo court, if you will, but there are some really interesting arguments. The people that have come on the defense have made some really compelling uh, arguments. So uh, I, I, I hope you check it out on my film threat YouTube channel. Uh, it's just film threat. Give it a shot. Check it out. You can watch live. It's a lot of fun. If not, you know, check out on the replays or other videos we post. I'm very blunt. I'm very common sense. And I respect your opinion, even if we disagree. People disagree with me in the chat. I'll tell you why I feel a certain way. And there you are. I think everyone has something to contribute. And and I, I, I like to hear. I tend to be I gravitate towards people whose opinion dif differs from mine because it's the only way to learn something, mm. right? I learn mm -hmm. by seeing what other people think about a topic. So there you go. So where can our listeners find Attack of the Doc, this movie? Uh, just look up Attack of the Doc. That's D-O-C. And it, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also go to Attack of the Doc. That's D-O-C dot com. And uh, you can get the Blu-ray. All the links are there, and uh, check it out. I hope you. I hope you see the movie. It's on video on demand, or or get the Blu-ray. You know, I do a commentary track, and then I also do a commentary track which goes into detail about how I made the movie because I made the movie over the pandemic, so I was limited. I had to do interviews over a live stream, and the documentary is an archival documentary, so it was made in a very specific way. And um, I explain for in like an hour, myself and uh, another producer, Bobby Schwartz, uh, we go into detailed conversation about how did this, how did we make this movie so you can go and make your own movie, which I hope that you might consider doing if that's where you want to go. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for this documentary and this, this march down memory lane on attack of the show. Thank you, Steve. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, Chip, uh, really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. So that's enough nostalgia for one day. Let's talk about the future, Chip. Well, the future is, Steve, that a record high share of 40-year-olds in the U.S. have never been married. That was reported this week. 25% uh, of 40-year-olds in the United States have never been married. Maybe they're living with someone. Maybe they're not. But anyway, it's a, it's, that's a staggering compared to our generation where it was much, much lower. And even 10 years ago, it was much, much lower. This is becoming the norm. The, the norm of getting married has changed for sure. I'm, I'm not even sure what marriage means in 2023. And I think young people are running into that too. And it could be that we get together and we have children and that is our bond. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. And here's a couple of things to, to pull from it. Um, a higher share of uh, men than women have never been married. Um, and, and I want you to consider this. There are more women than men mm -hmm. out there. Uh, black 40-year-olds are more likely to never be married than Hispanic, white, or Asian. Okay. So that's very interesting. And then education level. 40-year-olds uh, without a four-year college degree are more likely to have never been married. So once again, I mean, I I I th I think of loneliness. Mm -hmm. I think of companionship, and um, I don't know if it needs we 
there needs to be a national policy on it. It's something to follow that because the trends are there. We're, we're, we're not having children. We're not replacing ourselves. That could be a good thing. If the uh, Earth's population is plateauing mm. and getting smaller, maybe that's a good thing. It's it, The Earth may need less humans. I, I don't know. But on the same note, um, this could be you know devastating over time because if we look at demographics of, say, China, who we can't really trust all their data, um, their civilization is not going to do real well over the next 10, 15 years. It's getting much older. Russia's the same way. Russia's getting older. India has certainly surpassed the population. They are the largest country by population on the earth now. So they're the ones who who are continuing the, the idea of population. And, and on that, they may have surpassed China a long time ago. Hmm. Because we can't necessarily, we can't really trust the Chinese data. Interesting. Yeah, they, they, China may have overestimated their population by quite a bit. Hmm. But you know what? When people aren't getting married, at least there's Mick Jagger, Steve. You can always rely on Mick Jagger. Whenever there's a story, you can always rely on, hey, what's Mick doing? Hey, 79-year-old uh, Mick Jagger has stepped up to the plate. He's getting married, Steve. He's engaged. To his 36-year-old girlfriend, and uh, we wish them well. I can only imagine the, the parties that they have with Mick sleeping in a, a wing-back chair. That would be good. A little snoring going on. And he wakes up, and he goes, Mick, what do you want from dinner? And he's like, uh, would you like hamburgers? No. <laughs> How about some brown sugar? That's right. How come it tastes so good? <laughs> so let's thank Chris Gore for that wonderful interview, Steve. That was so much fun. I enjoy Chris Gore and his way of, of sharing information. And this documentary, Attack of the Doc, even if you don't remember Attack of the Show, this is an interesting pop culture look at a, a time in the past and the future of television. Because I don't know. I don't know what television looks like. I don't know what marriage looks like. I know what Indiana Jones looks like. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. I think so. This is our last episode of our ninth season, starting up next week with our 10th year of Too Much Scrolling. 10 years. 10 years. How about that? We want to thank everybody for sticking with us for the last nine years and our all of our friends and our executive producers and people who have contributed to the show for nine years. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're still on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassan. Independence, Chip has some fun. Independence. <laughs> By himself. We'll see you in the future. Steve, why do you force us to wear powdered wigs? No one's going to see us. I'm wearing my fedora. <laughs>